All right, thanks guys. <clears throat> My voice is also going out, so that's all right. We're going to spend some time looking at the scriptures together now. So if you will open your Bibles to John, we're in John chapter 2. We're calling this series, Who is Jesus? As we study the gospel of John, trying to understand better who he is and what it means to follow him. So we're in John chapter 2 today. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of the black Bibles and it's page 887 in the black Bibles. Uh, it's the fourth New Testament book in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, and today, as we continue to study who is Jesus, we're going to see what John calls the first sign, the first sign of Jesus. Now, what is a sign? Well, a sign is something that signifies something, right? You see that in the Word. It signifies something. It points to something. Uh, we have a sign out front that has the name of our church. You might see a sign that says one way or stop. And that's a simple way to understand what John is talking about here in the Gospel of John. But it goes a little deeper than that. Whenever the word sign is used in the Old Testament and even often in the New Testament, it goes along with wonders. Have you heard that phrase, signs and wonders? And so there's the connotation in the biblical context of a miracle, right? So it's not just a sign. It's not like a business card that Jesus pulls out and that's it. It's, it's something more than that. It's something a little more spectacular than that in the first sign. Um, also, just want to give you a little background. This is kind of like inside baseball that scholars debate in books. People are not sure exactly how many there are in the Gospel of John. I don't think John is that concerned to give us an exact number. He's writing poetically, and when we get to the end of the Gospel, he says, I wrote the things I wrote so that you would believe. And he says then, even after that, he says, there are so many signs that Jesus did, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to contain them all, right? And so we know he picked some of the best, right? We get the best of here. Um, and so scholars debate like, was this a sign or was that a sign? Well, they were all signs, but John is kind of like highlighting some as this was the first like important sign, right? So he says that about this one today when Jesus went to a wedding party and turned some water into wine. Jesus, and John says, this was the first sign, okay? So let's read that text. <clears throat> we're gonna start in chapter two, verse one. It says, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. That reads like a very simple sentence in English, but you want to hear it with a sense of panic, okay? They have no wine. Verse 4, and Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast, the guy that was in charge of the party. So they took it. Verse 9, when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. The first of his signs. One way I think it's helpful to think about this is like a scavenger hunt. Have you ever been on a scavenger hunt before? Have any of you ever done this? We did this for a couple of our kids' birthday parties, I think. I remember doing it as a youth pastor. 
when you're doing a scavenger hunt, you've got clues, and each clue leads you to the next clue, which eventually leads you to the treasure or the prize or the surprise at the ending. And so that's one of the ways you could think about what John is doing here. It's not that there weren't other clues that Jesus gave about who he was. Really, when you think about it, everything he said and did was a sign about who he was. But John is leading us on this clear path saying, this is the first clue. Pay attention. This is the first clue. Let me pray for us and then we'll look at this story and then there's a couple other little stories that he's added on in chapter two. Let me pray. God, thank you for your word. We praise you as a God who invites us to yourself. In a world where we are hungry and thirsty, you call to us to come to you as the true wine, as the one who satisfies our souls. We pray that you would teach us, that your spirit would meet us here this morning. We give ourselves to you and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So the first sign, the first calling card, the first indication of who Jesus is, is he turns water into wine at a wedding party. Isn't that amazing? Let me just stop and think about that. A lot of you that are here did not grow up in religious circles. You just kind of stumbled into this whole church thing. Man, God bless you. We're glad you're here, right? But a lot of us grew up in religious circles where like wine and parties was a no-no right? Some of you grew up in those kind of circles. And, and here we see something that seems to be at odds with American Christianity somewhat. Not all forms of American Christianity, but a lot of people that grew up in the South, especially in the Bible Belt. Here Jesus is doing something different. So the first thing I want us to see as we move through the text is that Jesus is calling himself the true wine. After we look at this story, then we're going to look at a couple other little sections in chapter 2. He's going to have an incident at the temple where he's going to, again, talk about his identity and who he really is as the true temple. And then finally, we're going to end with this picture, just a few verses at the end. It's almost like an epilogue that John tacks on to the end of chapter 2, where Jesus, we're going to see, is like the true man. He's a man on a mission from God, and he's not entrusting himself to the whims of all the people around him. And so that's a really interesting little epilogue that John adds on there. I think it'll make sense by the time we get to it. So first, let's start with Jesus as the true wine. The first thing that he does, John calls it the first sign, the first clue to his identity is he, he makes a party a better party. I think that's a helpful way to think about it. I think it's helpful to say it this way. Jesus reveals God to us as the God of parties. How about that? Do you like that? Make you a little uncomfortable if you grew up religious? Jesus says, I'm the God of parties. Throughout the other gospels, we see him continually saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a great party. The kingdom of heaven is like a great wedding feast. It's like a great party. We see in Revelation, the very last book of the Bible, it gives us insights into the heavenly realm and what it's going to look like when heaven and earth are joined and everything's made right. We're told that we're heading to this day that's the wedding supper of the Lamb. It's the great wedding party. Now, another thing we need to understand, again, because we're multicultural, we all come from different backgrounds. Some of you, the way you grew up, weddings are a lot of fun. They are wild parties. There's a lot of joy, and they go on for a lot of hours, right? Um, some of us didn't grow up that way, right? Like, weddings are kind of stiff, and there's some cake, and it's, you know, it's maybe a two-hour party. What I want you to understand is like some of you grew up with like a stiff two-hour party. Some of you grew up with a wild six-hour party. What they did like overshoots all of it, right? What they did was more like a four or five-day party, okay? That, that's what it was like in the Mediterranean in the first century. It just went on and on. 
So don't think modern wedding in America. Think something more like, I mean, the closest we could get would be like a conference, you know, or something, or like a, a family reunion, maybe. Like maybe we just say the holidays, right? Like for some of us, family all gets together at Christmas and it's like a four-day party. That, was, that would be closer to what is going on here. It's a huge party. And the wine would be at the center of the party. The wine was at the center of that. Now, we got to deal with wine, right? Because all Christians, especially in America, we have to just recognize this is a particularly American issue, right? More than in other countries, uh, American Christians have a problem with alcohol. Now, what I want you to understand is the Bible says that the attitude we should have with alcohol is be careful. That is the attitude we should have with alcohol. So some Christians have taken be careful and said, never touch it, which is, I would say that's reasonable, it is, but it is going farther than what Scripture says, right? And so, so that's fine, especially if you've seen alcohol abused in your family. Yeah, that makes sense. Like, just don't mess with it. It's not worth it, right? Or if you've struggled with addiction, yeah, you just need to not touch anymore. That totally makes sense. But we need to recognize that that is going farther than what the Scripture says. Scripture doesn't say never. The Scripture says be careful. Kind of like the categories of fire and sex. We would say those are gifts from God, but they're dangerous, right? And they need to be bounded and they need to be used very carefully in specific ways that God instructs us. So we would say the same thing about alcohol. What's also interesting is that it's a symbol throughout the Bible of two things. Wine particularly is a symbol of blessing and parties like it is here, but you know what else it's a symbol of? Of judgment and death. And so you have prophets saying something like, you know, the cup of judgment and it will make you stagger, right? So alcohol, when we drink too much of it, it judges us. It enslaves us. It it makes us unable to function and glorify God the way that we're made to. But when used with moderation, it can be a, a symbol of blessing and joy. You know, one glass can make you happy. Ten glasses can make you stagger and it's judgment and death, right? And so we have to recognize, again, that The Bible has this be careful attitude. There's scriptures on both sides, right? People that say never drink alcohol can find plenty of verses that say, man, it's dangerous. They're there. But there are also tons of verses that say it's a symbol of joy and celebration and of God's goodness to us. And so we need to kind of balance that out and we need to learn how to get along with each other as Christians because some of us are going to kind of be, it's one of those gray issues, some of us are going to be lean more on one side than the other side. The other thing we have to deal with is because of a lot of Christian denominations that have taught that alcohol is always a problem, they would teach that in the first century, they basically didn't drink alcohol like we do, and that, that's historically not completely true. So they have a good point that they've run with, and the good point is that they commonly cut their wine with water. So here's the deal. They always had nasty water, and so they were always cutting, it, they were always cutting wine with water to, to clean the water, and so they drank watered-down wine all the time, right? And so that is historically true. That doesn't mean that like strong wine didn't exist. So that's another thing. We kind of have to balance out in our mind going like, yeah, I'm sure some people like never drank strong wine, just like people today never drink strong wine, but it wasn't commanded scripturally. So we just need to understand they had all kinds of varieties of wine and like watered down wine and strong wine and they had fresh grape juice, but if you left grape juice sitting around, what would happen? It would become wine, right? They didn't have refrigerators like we do. So there's a whole spectrum of what was going on in the first century. Here, we just need to deal with, it's a symbol of a party. It's a symbol of joy. 
And that's what Jesus is symbolizing. He's saying, he's the true wine, he's the true joy, he's the real life of the party. Question is, what are we gonna do with that? I grabbed a picture of people celebrating around the table. Um, One of the central kind of symbols of the Christian life is the table, right? Bread and wine. Now, we actually have juice at our table when we do the Lord's Supper. You know what that is? Well, we've got juice available. They didn't have juice. You know, it was was harder to store juice. We can store juice. It's just something we've opted for to keep life simple and easy for us. But when we do that, we're not saying wine is a sin, right? We just use juice because we just juice and didn't think it was that big a deal. They're both uh, fruit of the vine. The symbol here is eating and drinking. And the symbol that we have in communion is that Jesus is our true food and our true drink. Here, he's making the party better. The party is failing. It's a big deal to run out of wine at a party. Let's look at what his mother says to him. Look at verse three. It says in verse three, when the wine ran out, or in some translations, when the wine failed, <clears throat> the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. When I read that earlier, I said, she's, she's saying that with panic in her voice. She's running to her son, desperate for him to fix the situation. This is an embarrassment in the first century. This was an honor-shame culture, and this would have been a great shame to run out of wine in this culture. So she's saying, we... They're out of wine, probably a cousin or a good friend of hers, and she was really ashamed and hurt and sad for them. And verse four, Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, in almost any English translations, that sounds kind of harsh when Jesus says that, right? Um, I would say, I was reading D.A. Carson on the subject, and I think he was helpful. The way he worded it, it he said that it's probably like saying ma'am in the north, right? So we all come from different parts of the country. If you live in the south, you say ma'am and sir all the time, no matter what, right? But in the North, it's like a special use thing, right? You might use it in a formal occasion. It is respectful. It's a respectful thing to say ma'am. It's not disrespectful, but it's also a little bit cold and distant, right? Now, in the South, it's different, right? So throw that out of your mind if you're a Southerner. But if, if you're from the North, you understand what I'm saying. It's a, it's a respectful way to address someone, but it wouldn't have been the typical way to address your mommy in the first century, Okay. Not even for an adult male, right? This was a patriarchal, matriarchal kind of society where they would have still, even as a 30-year-old man, still would have shown great deference and sweetness and agreeableness to his mother. So uh, here's how I'd define it. There's some coldness and some distance there, but it's respectful. So I don't think he's being disrespectful. I think he's still obeying the commandments and honoring his mother, but he is distancing himself more than would be typical in that culture. He's saying, my identity is not caught up, mother, in what you want me to do for you. My identity is not caught up. I have a mission. My identity is not about what you demand of me. And that's, I think, an important thing to see, and we'll come back to that in the end with the little epilogue where it talks about Jesus and his identity. So here he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? And then he says, my hour has not yet come. Why does he say that? Well, first of all, what is, what is he saying? When he says, my hour has not yet come, Throughout John, that specifically means his death and resurrection. That's what his hour was. That's what his time was. That was what his mission was. He was focused on that. So why would he jump there? Well, again, the Bible continually says that heaven is the great wedding party and that the way that we will ultimately find eternal joy, the way that we will come to a place where the party never ends and the wine never runs out is through heaven and earth being joined through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Like that's the only way 
all things will be made right again. And that's why Revelation has this picture of heaven as the wedding supper of the Lamb. So when she says the wine ran out, you need to fix it, make more wine, he immediately is, he immediately is going to the future, right? It's not, it's not my time to make eternal wine yet that never runs out. It's not my hour yet. It's not time for me to go to the cross yet. So he's clarifying, I won't be defined by the demands that the people around me put on me. I have to, I have to fulfill the mission that the Father has sent me on. And yet, if we move on, in verse 5, his mother was like, okay, do whatever he tells you. <laughs> right? I think she knows Jesus just overflows with mercy and he's going to do something, Right? She's like, okay, I get the message. I can't control my son. He's on a mission from his father, you know. But he's like, do whatever he tells you. Verse six. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And so Jews, both in their daily hygiene, were obsessed with cleanliness, right? That's a good thing. We like hygiene as modern people as well. We all own homes with showers and baths or have apartments with showers and baths. And this was very important to them as well. It was also a part of their religion. So they had symbolic purity, ritual washings, and they also practiced it on a, on a daily basis like we do as well. So they had these jars for their ritual purification, but it was also an important part of who they were as Jews. They were just really obsessed with being clean. And so it's interesting, you could go do a whole sermon on this, right? He takes their cleansing vessels, and that's where he makes the wine. Verse 7, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. They filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. They took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. So he tastes the wine, and he's like, what is going on here? He's really amazed at what is happening because the wine is so good. Listen to what he says, verse 10. He said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. So he's saying, this is what normally happens. This is why we know it's real wine, right? He says, typically what happens at a party is you kind of get people a, a little bit tipsy on the good wine, and then you can pull out the cheap wine and nobody will notice, right? So again, to clarify, I don't want to make light of this. Like if you grew up with the sin of drunkenness and this problem, the scripture is clear in the New Testament. It says, don't be drunk with wine, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit, right? So again, the scripture here is not saying, go be drunk, but it's just a pointer that, yeah, it's real wine. It's the kind of wine that they could drink too much of. And he's like, this is standard. This is how our parties function. People drink a little too much, right? We wouldn't say it's like complete insane debauchery, right? These were good moral Jews. But they would say, then you can't taste the cheap wine as much. It was real wine, and it was the best wine, which is another interesting sign of who Jesus is, right? Jesus made the best wine, made the best. He says, verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So one of the commentators I was reading this week, uh, Newbegin, was talking about how the wine we have always runs out. And he's speaking metaphorically. Whatever we have that brings joy always, the older translations, fails, runs out. It's always temporary, but Jesus is the true wine that never runs out. So I think it's really helpful for us to think about in our own life Number one, do I reflect Jesus and his character? Do I reflect the God of parties? 
Do I reflect the overflowing joy and glory of the Savior that I'm following? Again, not drunkenness, not debauchery, not immorality. We still believe in the same moral code that is the same between the Old and New Testament, but do we bring joy? Do we make parties more fun? Do we even have parties? Do we demonstrate who God is the way Jesus demonstrates who God is? Making a party better, bringing the best wine. I think it's helpful to think about whatever gift you have in life. We all have different skills. We all have different gifts, right? Because I know the wine thing's making a lot of us uncomfortable. Let's just jump off wine and let's use it as a metaphor, right? We all have gifts that bring blessing and make the party better. We all have skills that we can employ that will bring joy and fun to the people around us. And just like wine, when it's too much, it's a curse. And when it's a little bit, it's a blessing. In the same way, when you run after your gifts as the solution to everything in life, and you say, my money is what will solve every problem. I'm going to bring money to every issue that comes up. I'm going to devote myself to money. Then it's like you're drinking the cup of cursing. You're getting drunk on money. Or if it's relationships, if I can just have happy relationships around me and if everybody's happy all the time, you're falling into codependency and you're being enmeshed with other people and you're just saying, if if everybody's happy, then everything will be good. Well, you're, you're getting drunk on relationships and you're drinking the cup of judgment. So here we have this picture of whatever it is, whatever the cup is that you're drinking and you're serving to other people, if you go all in, if you make that ultimate, it's going to fail. It's, become, it's going to become something that enslaves. It's going to become an idol that, that judges you instead of the God who gives life to you, who makes life a party. So I think an application for us is like, what's, what is it that God's given me? How can I use that in moderation to be a blessing to others, knowing that ultimately where I find my security, my salvation is not in this gift, but it's in Jesus who's the true gift the true wine, the true party, the eternal feast, right? How can I bring some feasting in life through the gifts he's given me, recognizing they're all secondary? He's, he's ultimate. I'm, I'm constantly pointing to him instead of to me and, and the circumstances and the things he's given me. Um, pray that God would connect the dots in your life so that as you serve other people in love, they see I've got this gift, but you know what? This is not everything. My God is everything. Jesus is everything. He's he's eternal joy. He's the eternal party. How can you serve others in a way that points people back to Jesus? The next point is interesting. There's an interesting transition here. As I said before, John has certain little points where he's like, this is the first sign, right? He just said that about this. Turning water into wine was the first sign. And then there's going to be another sign, and even the word sign will come up, but But this isn't the second sign as as far as John's concerned. This is just maybe another clue. Maybe we want to use another word for it. But we see another instance of Jesus' identity as the true temple. He's the true temple. What is a temple? A temple is the place where people meet God. Temple is a place where people meet God. Look at verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was the capital sometimes called Mount Zion, right? That was the mountain that the capital city, the fortified city was on top of. So we hear this as Mount Zion or as Jerusalem, and this is where the temple was located. So at the heart of the people's nation, they had this place to meet God. And what they learned there as they went to meet God through the entire sacrificial system 
is they learned that God is absolutely holy and they are not holy and they need to be purified in order to come into God's holy presence. But they learn, yeah, they need to be scared, but God is constantly inviting the nations in. If you read the Psalms, the Psalms are always saying, come all you nations, come to the Lord, come praise the Lord, come see the Lord, come know the Lord. And so they have this whole system of sacrifices and these sacrifices are picturing for people that they need a sacrifice to pay for their sin, to purify them, to clean them up so that they can come in to God's presence. That's what the temple is about. And, and what is this holiday, Passover? Passover was the number one holiday for them. It was the beginning of their new year, and it was the holiday or festival that reminded them of how God had brought them out of slavery in Egypt. That's called the Exodus. You go back and read the Exodus story. That's what it's all about. And that was like the cross of the Old Testament. That was like the number one most quoted, most referred to display of God's saving power in the Old Testament. So the Passover was this holiday where they celebrated that a lamb had taken away their sins that God had rescued them from slavery, that they had been redeemed, that they had been set free. So it was this time of year and in this place. Very significant place, very significant time. And these things will come up again throughout the New Testament. It says in verse 14, in the temple, Jesus, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip, it says, of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. What is he doing? Jesus is angry here. Now, um, anger in humans is typically a bad thing, right? Anger is typically a bad thing. James says the anger of man doesn't achieve the righteousness of God, right? But there is such a thing in God and in the person of Jesus as a righteous anger, and that's what he's displaying here. This is a righteous anger, and he's chasing people out. Why? Because the temple was the place for people to meet God. Now, they could justify what they were doing because they were selling things and changing money and giving sacrifices so that people could go through the proper, proper rituals and sacrifices to meet God, right? So they were saying, we're doing this to help people. But two little clues. One is they were in the courts where the Gentiles were supposed to gather. So physically, they were squeezing people out. That's one clue to why Jesus was mad. And we see cross-references to him doing the similar thing in the other Gospels. Uh, scholars disagree on this, but we would kind of read it as he did this, this cleansing of the temple, this chasing people out at the beginning of his ministry, here at the beginning of the Gospel of John. And then the other Gospels give us a story of him doing this at the very end of his ministry, right before he dies on the cross. So I would understand this, not everybody agrees, I would understand this as he did it twice. And in both instances, there are similarities, right? Saying, my father's house is supposed to be a place of prayer. It's supposed to be a prayer, place of prayer for all nations, he says in some of the other gospels. And so there's this outer court of the Gentiles and they were filling it with all these people trading money and selling sacrifices, telling themselves it was to help more people worship, but it was actually squeezing people out so they couldn't come into those courts. There wasn't enough room. A second, a little clue we get as to why Jesus was so angry is in the other Gospels, it talks about this as a corruption. You can kind of see this in the anger he has in this passage as well. There's a corruption going on here. The, the idea is that the religious leaders of the day were getting kickbacks from the trade that was taking place. So it would be like, um, it'd be like a pastor 
you know, selling a bunch of his own stuff in the front of the church. Or so, you know, like, I don't, I don't know what the, all the illustrations would be, but it'd be like, imagine someone saying, you know what, I'm gonna use this place of worship just to make myself rich. You probably couldn't imagine that in America, though, could you? Yeah. Um, so maybe you'll have to think of another illustration. But it's, it's people taking advantage of a place of worship and saying, this place is supposed to be for people to meet God, but I'm gonna make it a place for me to get rich. And Jesus was saying, this is a corruption. The purpose is for people to meet God. And it says, verse 17, look at this. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. It's quoting Psalm 69, which is it's really fascinating, right? Because here, you could translate it as like, he's getting worked up, right? Zeal for your house will consume me. In the Hebrew, it's like literally eat him up. Jesus' zeal for people to meet God will literally destroy him. And his disciples remembered, oh yeah, that's, that's what's happening here. This was a little foreshadowing of that. Verse 18, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? What do they mean there? You're saying, what sign can you do to show us that you, a peasant, have any right to tell us what to do? Do you have any authority here, right? They're questioning his authority. Jesus answered them, verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, what's really interesting here is neither the authorities nor the disciples really knew what he was saying, right? So one of the cool things of, of entering into a study of the Gospels is you get to see what it's like for the disciples discovering things along the way. They see Jesus do things, and they're like, I don't, I'm not really sure what he's saying here, right? I don't really get this. And I want to encourage you that that's okay, and that's okay for you too. When you're following Jesus, you're going to see things and experience things, and you're like, Jesus, what, what was that? What was that about? There are things that probably happened to you in your past that were terrible things, and you may not ever really get the answer to those things until you die and see God face to face. There's some things you, you immediately understand. Immediate sign. You know what Jesus is saying. Other things you just keep following, and, you, and you're not really sure how to make sense of that experience or that thing that you saw. And that's kind of what happened here. It says, if you read ahead, um, you keep reading, it says in verse 20, the Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? Verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. So they didn't really understand it, but John is now, you know, giving us insight as the writer of this thing. Well, he was talking about himself. Verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, three years later, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Right? So the disciples didn't know what was going on here either. The Jewish leaders didn't know what he was saying. The disciples didn't know what he was saying. John's saying, oh, we figured it out three or four years later. He rose from the dead, and then we're like, oh, that's what he meant, right? That's a lot of times what, it, what it's like for us. Don't give up. Keep following Jesus, right? Keep following him. It, eventually, we'll figure it out, okay? Don't wait until you have everything figured out and then say, okay, now I'm ready to follow you, Jesus, because I have all knowledge. That's, that's not going to work, right? We're human beings. We're never going to have perfect and complete knowledge. I grabbed a picture here of the temples. Just a little background. This time of history is sometimes referred to as Second Temple Judaism. Have you all ever heard that term? And that means the first temple was destroyed. The temple that Solomon built was destroyed when they were exiled. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, everybody marched through these empires, scattered the Jews everywhere. That was the first temple. 
So then the second temple was built when they started coming back. We see that story in Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, and so this is the second temple, but it was built in phases, right? They kept adding on to it. They kept making it nicer. So kind of like our church, our church was built about 20 years ago, this building. Um, but we just did a building project this summer, and we added a front to it, right? We added a, a lobby and some nursery rooms. Um, so we would say, like, we do, it took us 18 months to, to build this building. We would say that this summer. Well, we were talking about the addition we did, and that's what they're talking about here. It took us 46 years to build this. What are you talking about? This was the Herodian King Herod additions to the second temple. So I just wanted to give you a little background there because, um, again, you hear all these things on History Channel and all the stuff that tries to like undermine what the Bible is saying. It, it's true. Just take it at face value, right? It's understandable what they're saying makes sense in context. So Jesus is saying, I'm the true temple. You have this fantastic building that's built to meet God, and we're doing this theater, we're doing this drama of all the sacrifices and all the rituals, and this theater and this drama is telling a story. The story is that God is absolutely holy and perfect, and God created the world absolutely holy and perfect, and that mankind has fallen from that. We're all sinful, we all need to be purified, and Jesus is saying, he's the ultimate way. He's the ultimate purification. As he said to Nathaniel earlier, we saw that in chapter one, he said, you're gonna see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man like a ladder, like a stairway to heaven because Jesus is the bridge and the road that joins heaven and earth. And here he's saying the same kind of thing. I'm the temple. And you will truly understand that I'm the temple when I rise from the dead, right? Because the disciples weren't getting it yet. But the resurrection proved it. And so I think an application of this that's really helpful is to think about it this way. Um, there are gonna be things that you're learning in your life and you're going to be talking to your friends about who Jesus is, and your friends are going to have all kinds of questions about, valid questions about like weird things they read in the Old Testament, or weird things that a professor said about how Christianity is unreliable. I think this is a little clue that we should keep bringing it back to the identity of Jesus himself. It's okay to have those other conversations. It's even helpful to have those other conversations, but don't lose sight of the primary conversation. The linchpin is the identity of Jesus that's based on the resurrection itself. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, if the resurrection didn't happen, this is all a waste of time. The resurrection is the seal and the proof that Jesus did conquer sin and death once and for all. So in the Bible, we often have shorthand. Shorthand is the cross, right? The cross is shorthand for Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Your sins are forgiven. They're paid for. Another shorthand we see in the Bible is the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ, right? He spilt his blood. He was the sacrifice. He was, as John the Baptist said in the previous chapter, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He was the true Passover lamb. He was the true temple sacrifice. And so all that is true and right. But here, the disciples didn't get it until the resurrection happened. Paul later on says in 1 Corinthians 15, if the resurrection happened, none of it worked, Right? The resurrection proved that he actually did conquer sin and death. And so I think that's just a helpful theological thing to remember. The resurrection is central to Christianity. And if people see that Jesus rose from the dead, then they'll be like, okay, I'm, I'm willing to deal with the weird stuff in the Old Testament, right? Like I'm willing to give Jesus the benefit of the doubt. He, he liked the Old Testament. It kind of freaks me out, but I'll start following him and I'll start trying to understand what it means. I'll give him the benefit of the doubt, but but make the primary conversation in your own life, in your own heart, and in your friends that you're talking through this with, who is Jesus? That's the primary thing. Jesus says, I'm the temple. 
I'm the temple. And then we can work backwards from there and make more sense of, of everything the Old Testament said about the temple. He's the place where people meet God and the resurrection proves that his death for us, his sacrifice for us actually worked. He died on the cross for your sins. He rose from the dead to prove it. He once and for all conquered sin and death. Another way to talk about this is theologians talk about double imputation. Double imputation is the idea that your sin was put on Jesus on the cross, right? He took your sin. Double imputation is also his resurrection life was imputed to you. So when God looks at you, he doesn't just see you as someone whose debts have been paid. Yes, your debts have been paid and that's important. But he also sees you as someone who has got all the resources of Christ credited to your account. He sees you as perfect and as full of resurrection life as Christ himself because you're hidden in Christ. You're one with him by faith. So what I want to end with here is this picture that Jesus is the true human. This is a little epilogue. These are a little few verses that are tacked on to the end of these stories, right? We get the first story of Jesus turning water into wine. We get the second story of him saying he's the true temple and he's chasing people out of the temple for not letting people see God. In verse 23, it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So we're thinking, all right, this is great. He's building a movement. Many are believing. They're seeing the signs and they're believing. But a, a little negative thing about signs, throughout John and really throughout the rest of the Bible, it, it's a positive and negative thing, right? There are people that see signs and start following Jesus. Yay, that's good. That's what we should be doing. We should see the signs and follow him. But there are people that say, ah, that sign's not enough, and can you give me another sign? And they're demanding signs. And they're using their demand for signs as an excuse to not follow Jesus. Or they're saying, Jesus, I'll only follow you when you give me the most convenient and uh, friendly signs that make my life easier. And so, so let's read this again now. When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. That believe and entrust is the same root in Greek, so we could say it this way. Many trusted Jesus because of the signs, but Jesus didn't entrust himself to them. Or many believed in Jesus because he showed them some signs that they liked, but Jesus didn't believe in them. It's this really interesting distance. It's, it's what we saw modeled, as I said, in his interaction with Mary. The, the typical interaction in that day would have been just absolute obedience, do whatever mom says, even as an adult son. But he had a distance there. He was respectful to her, but there was a distance where he was saying, I've got a mission. I've got a mission. I'm defined by my father. And here we say the same thing. His his identity is not defined on how many of us believe in him, right? Or how many of us follow. And this is so hard for us to understand because as humans, we're so wrapped up in, in what other people think of us. I grabbed a picture here of a kind of note that I think I passed to people and other people passed to me when I was a kid. This note says, do you like me? And it's got a checkbox, yes, no, maybe. Um, maybe you didn't do it with a note. Maybe you saw a pretty girl, guys, and you... Talk to the pretty girl's friend. You were like, well, I'd like to ask pretty girl out, but I don't know if pretty girl likes me. Why don't you ask pretty girl if she would say yes if I did ask her out, right? Like, young people, don't do it that way, okay? Um, he, wasn't, he wasn't like waiting for us going, well, if you like me, then maybe I could be the savior of the world, right? Like, he didn't get his identity from us. And that's so different than who we are. 
It goes on and it says, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Um, We talked about this when we first introduced John. The picture of John uh, that John gives us of God is that this beautiful trinity existed in eternity past. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit lived an eternal love and we were created not because God was so lonely and needy and he needed us and he just couldn't get by without us. God created us out of the overflow of his love. And we, say this, we see the same thing in redemption, right? Jesus doesn't save us because he was so desperately needy to know that we liked him. Jesus saved us because he loved us first. John says it this way. The same author here wrote in this short letter of 1 John, we love because he first loved us. And so we have this beautiful picture that our identity, our love, our faith, the signs, all of it is something that God started. We are responding to him. And he's not dependent on our response. He's coming after us on a rescue mission of love. I hope, you, I hope that shows you that grace is even more gracious than you thought. He's coming after us because of the initiation of the Father's love. And the Son says, yeah, I love him. Let's do this. And so God has rescued us, and he calls us to himself to respond to him as as the true wine, as the true temple, as our true hope. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us. We thank you that you invite us to yourself, and you call us to life in you, and we pray that you would teach us how to live this out, how to follow you even though we don't have it all figured out, how to trust that, Jesus, you are the place to meet God, how to trust that you are the one that is creating the eternal party. God, I pray that you would show us what, it, what does it look like to be people of joy, to be people that, that have good parties, that invite people to a joyful fellowship with you. God, teach us to love others the way you loved us first. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.